0: The labor market remains strong, Jerome Powell moves markets, we cover the latest earnings throughout the week, including Uber, Lyft, and Disney, along with this rumored SEC crypto crackdown. This is the Running With The Money show, powered by Donate Capital and Pounding the Table. Let's get into it. It's
1: not a question of enough, pal. It's a zero-sum game. Somebody wins, somebody loses.
0: I have been a rich man, and I have been a poor man, and I choose rich every time. Money never sleeps, pal. Just made 800000 on Congo. you I am. There are three ways to make a living in this business.
1: First, be smarter, or cheaper.
0: What is up and welcome back to another episode of the running with the money show and my oh my what a week it has been and we have a lot to cover so let's start with the darn macro what is going on with the economy what's going on with the labor market well let's start with U.S. weekly jobs claims that we got yesterday we get them every freaking Thursday morning and well what did they tell us yesterday morning. Well, initial claims for state unemployment benefits increased 13,000 to a seasonally adjusted 196,000 for the week ended February 4th. And that was according to the Labor Department. Now, that's the first increase in claims we have seen since the second to last week of December 2022. An economist polled by Reuters were expecting 190,000. So, They even came in above expectations. Now, the four-week moving average for claims actually fell 2,500 to 189,250, and that is a big time moving average right there. Most people follow that instead of the headline number because it is naturally, according to some, more accurate. Now, shifting into unadjusted claims, those increased by 9,628 to 234,654 last week, and continuing claims increased by 38,000 to 1.688 million. So this weekly jobless claims report had a few highlights of labor market weakness, but really not much at all. And this all comes on the back of that jobs report we had last week that showed an increase of 517,000 in non-farm payrolls throughout the month of January. And that was above the Dow Jones estimate of 187,000 and the December gain of 260,000. And I want to really dig in to this report that we got on non-farm payrolls last week. I want to dig into it more right here. And I want to take you into the details before we cover what Jerome Powell said this week. Now, in this report, we also got the unemployment rate. That fell to 3.4%, and that was compared to the estimate of 3.6%. So we were expecting weakness in the labor market in this major payables report we got at the end of last week, and instead, we got record strength. We got an unemployment rate of 3.4%. This was the lowest jobless level since May of 1969, and on top of that, the labor force participation rate actually moved higher. It edged higher to 62 Now, shifting in to where in the economy we're seeing these outrageous labor market gains, and we saw it in professional and business services, up 82,000. Leisure and hospitality added the most, 128,000 jobs added there. The government added 74,000. Healthcare added 58,000. Retail was up by 30,000 jobs, and construction added 25,000. And on top of all the jobs ads, we also saw average hourly earnings by 0.3%, and that was in line with the estimate, and up 4.4% from a year ago. So what are we seeing throughout the labor market? We're seeing continued strength in the labor market, and this is really something that bulls are not liking. Now, why don't they like a strong labor market? Why the hell don't they like this? Well, they don't like it because the Fed has continued to say, and we highlighted this in our last show, that pretty much the labor market remains strong and we can keep on hiking and attacking inflation. And really they're using the strength in the labor market as an excuse to continue pushing on the economy and continue pushing on the door of inflation until inflation is down as far as they can get it. And that is really what Fed Chair Jerome Powell reiterated in an interview this week or a speech this week. He was speaking at the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. with the Carlisle Group co-founder, David Rubenstein. And Rubenstein asked him a few questions, and we're going to get into that right now. Now, the first one was really about uh, what his thoughts are post-FOMC and their decision to hike rates by 25 bips, And this is what he went on to say. Uh, So the message
1: we were sending at the FOMC meeting last Wednesday was really that um, the disinflationary process, the process of getting inflation down has begun. And it's begun in the goods sector, which is about a quarter of our economy. But it has a long way to go. These are the very early stages of disinflation. So the services sector really, except for housing services, (coughs) pardon me, uh, is not really showing any, any disinflation yet. So our message really was, this process is likely to take quite a bit of time uh, it's not going to be, uh, we don't think, smooth. It's probably gonna be bumpy. And so we think that we're gonna need to do further rate increases, as we said, and we we think that we'll need to hold policy at a restrictive level for a period of time. Then comes the uh, the, the uh, labor market report for January. And it's very strong. It's certainly stronger than anyone I know expected. And so, but but I would say, we didn't expect it to be this strong, but I would say it it kind of shows you why we think that this will be a, a, a process that takes a significant period of time. The, the, the labor market's extraordinarily strong. And by the way, it's good. It's a good thing that inflation has started to come down without it. that has not happened at the at the cost of a strong labor markets. So and of course, since then the labor market, sorry, financial conditions have tightened significantly since then.
0: And wow, there was a lot packed into that opening line out of Jerome Powell. He starts with that disinflationary process. He acknowledged it. He says that the process in which inflation is declining has started, the disinflationary process. And he talks about how we are seeing this in the goods sector, but not as much in the services sector. And then he goes on to say that this is very early stages and there's much more to go, which is what they've continued to say. And then immediately after he says there's much further to go, he brings up that labor market report we just went over from last week that basically showed the labor market is red hot. And he essentially goes on to say that as long as this labor market strength continues is what you are going to see is the Fed continually moving forward on the fight with inflation and trying to bring it down. And that could mean Rates elevated for a longer amount of time or even more rate hikes. Now, coupled with all of that, the market, the beginning of this week, was pricing in rate cuts by the end of 2023. Yes, you heard me correctly. Despite all the hawkish talk, despite all of the Fed jawboning, the market was pricing in cuts by the end of 2023. And Rubenstein actually asked Powell about this directly and said what he thinks about all that, and really what the Federal Reserve thinks about that. And Jerome Powell went on to say this: All of these numbers that we're
1: throwing around here are conditional on incoming data and what happens. So we never say this is this is what we think will happen. We you know we we make a tentative forecast and then we let the data come in. For example, if the data were to continue to come in stronger than we expect. And we were to conclude that we needed to raise rates more than is priced into the markets or than we wrote down at our last group of forecasts in December, then we would certainly do that. We would certainly raise rates more.
0: And there you go. There's your clarity. He didn't even answer the question head on. He pretty much put out there what the Fed was going to do in the case of stronger data. And he pretty much said exactly this, that if the data continues to come in strong, we will continue to raise rates and we may have to raise rates above what is currently priced in. So pretty much there, he's shutting down the market expectation that you are going to see rate cuts by the end of this year. And then he continued on just after that line, and he even went on to say and reaffirm the 2% inflation target and that that was not going to change.
1: So 2% is the global standard, and that is our objective, 2% piece, as measured by the the. Uh, PCE uh, index and that's just that's not something we're looking at changing that isn't going to change it's that's not going to change not going to change now.
0: Now the whole interview wasn't just him pretty much saying that the Fed will go further if they need to he also talked about 2023 and how 2023 will be a year of disinflation and that the Federal Reserve believes that.
1: We expect 2023 to be a year of significant declines in inflation and it's actually our job to make sure that that's the case but I would tell you that, uh, you know, with inflation headline, headline uh, PCE inflation is running about 5 percent. This is on a 12 month basis. Core is running at 4.4. 4. My guess is it will take certainly into not just this year, but next year to get down close to 2 percent.
0: And there you go. He pretty much said that the Federal Reserve believes 2023 will be a significant year of disinflation, that inflation will come down. But that is a pretty long process. And on top of that, we're still at significantly elevated levels. So we shouldn't get super duper excited about this is somewhat the attitude you have been getting out of Powell. Now, to round out his commentary in relation to the labor market strength even further throughout recent weeks, Powell noted that the road ahead is significant, and the base case is that it'll take some time.
1: Well, I mean, this is a world in which we've had the the inflate, sorry, the the un, the, right. the, the labor market report, and I think that does, I think it, it underscores the message that I was sending at the at the um, press conference and in the meeting that we have a significant road ahead to get inflation down to 2% and and I I think there's been an expectation that it'll that it'll go away quickly uh, and painlessly and I I don't think that's at all guaranteed that's not the base case. The base case is it will t- for me is that it will take some time and w- we'll have to do more rate increases and then we'll have to look around and see whether we've done enough.
0: So overall Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell pretty much reiterated exactly what the Fed has been saying all along. Look, inflation is starting to come down. We're starting to see the results of our actions throughout the recent months. But at the same time, it's a long road ahead. We have much further to go on inflation and the market shouldn't get its hopes up. And that's pretty much what the Fed has been issuing throughout their commentary over the course of the last few months and especially Over the course of the past month, they talked about financial conditions remaining tight, the labor market remaining strong, more rate hikes on the way. So it's definitely something to pay attention to, but we do have to recognize that there was dovish talk in there. Disinflation, 2023, inflation is going to be coming down quite significantly. I mean, He also mentioned all of that. So those were slightly dovish tones that we should also take from his commentary. Now, shifting away from the Federal Reserve and Mr. Jerome Powell, we have to talk about an interesting headline that came out of the market this week, and it actually came out just yesterday on Thursday. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong sounding the alarm on a potential staking crackdown by the SEC. Now, right now, this is purely a rumor, according to CNBC, and the SEC declined for comment on the story per multiple sources. But Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase, went on to say in a tweet, quote, we're hearing rumors that the SEC would like to get rid of crypto staking in the U.S. for retail customers. I hope that's not the case, as I believe it would be a terrible path for the U.S., if that was allowed to happen. And of course, many crypto investors and traders did not like this news and it really wouldn't be good for Coinbase. And it really wouldn't be good for the whole entire ecosystem, especially if you look at certain elements of the ecosystem, such as Ethereum. Now, Ethereum is proof of stake and they use staking as really the core element of their entire system. So You take a look at Ethereum and we actually got commentary from Owen Lau, who's an analyst at Oppenheimer per CNBC. And he went on to say, quote, for Ethereum to work, you have to stake your ether onto the network to support the transaction. If nobody can stake, then how can you support that transaction from being made on the network? So essentially what he's saying is if you can't stake, Ethereum isn't necessarily gonna work. You won't be able to actually process transactions on the Ethereum network. And if you lose Ethereum in the ecosystem in the United States, where does that leave crypto? Pretty much with Bitcoin. I mean, there's other opportunities out there, but staking is involved in the large majority of those. So if the SEC goes after staking, you're looking at a major issue for the U.S. cryptocurrency industry. The market makers and hedge funds run the market, but what if I told you there was a platform that provided unique insights into hidden hedging, exposing the smart money's active positions. Rocket Scooter revolutionizes technical analysis, utilizing liquidity data to reveal high reward, lower setups for any market environment. Not only that, but Rocket Scooter provides you with live stream trading every weekday, detailed training videos, personal coaching, and access to a private trading community of over 3,000 traders. Check out Rocket Scooter easy to use platform that includes automatic liquidity mapping and customizable scanners and much more. In fact, this tool is so awesome. I use it in my daily trading strategy. So go give Rocket Scooter a try completely free using the link rocket forward slash Luke. Again, that's rocket forward slash Luke. Let's get back to the show. Now shifting in to earnings. Boy, oh boy, we had a lot throughout this week. We had Lyft shares tanking 30% after the company issued weak guidance. And this is the first one we are going to talk about. So Lyft falling basically 30%, if not more, in the after hours this week when they released their earnings report on Thursday. And man, there was a lot of news in this. An adjusted loss per share of 74 cents, revenue coming in at $1.18 billion. And then that was compared to the expected $1.16 billion per analyst. Now, $1.18 billion in revenue wasn't bad. I mean, revenue up 21% year over year from $969.9 million posted same quarter a year ago and on top of that the company recorded 20.3 million active riders in the fourth quarter but what is the issue with that well it's the fact that they were flat from the third quarter but up 8.7% year over year but still below the fourth quarter 2019 levels of 22.9 million active riders now on top of that management on the say quote under our updated non-GAAP calculation Adjusted EBITDA was negative 248.3 million versus the negative 47.6 million in the fourth quarter of 2021, and a negative 26.7 million in the third quarter of 2022. So overall, you had an adjusted loss per share of 74 cents. Revenue up 21% year over year at 1.18 billion dollars, beating expectations. But unfortunately, the active riders that was pretty unimpressive and below the 2019 same time level and adjusted EBITDA coming in significantly negative. But that wasn't the worst part. You get in the guidance and Lyft went on to say that they expect to make roughly $975 million in revenue throughout the fiscal fourth quarter of 2023, which was lower than the 1.09 billion analysts anticipated. And on top of that, they also noted that they expect to make an adjusted EBITDA of roughly $5 to $15 million in the first quarter. In fact, "on quote Management said, our Q1 guidance is a result of seasonality and lower prices, including less prime time. Additionally, our different insurance renewal timing puts differently timed pressure on our PL. We are waiting for that to normalize to achieve competitive service levels. We are focused on driving greater growth and profitability. Now, while all that was going on just ahead of them, Uber beat estimates and the stock moved higher. In fact, earlier in the week, Uber delivered an earnings per share of 29 cents compared to the 18 cent loss expected by analysts. And on top of that, revenue came in at $8.6 billion, better than the $8.49 billion expected by analysts, and was up for the quarter by 49% year over year. Now, Uber did note that net income for the quarter was $595 million dollars, of which $756 million was a net benefit due to unrealized gains on equity investments. But still, this was a good quarter when it comes to the headline numbers for Uber. And if you dig into it, it was even better. The number of monthly active platform consumers climbed to 131 million for the fourth quarter. That was up 11% year over year. They delivered 2.1 billion trips completed on the platform during the period. That was up 19% year over year. Mobility gross bookings came in at 14.9 billion. That was up compared to the $14.8 billion expected by Analyst. Delivery gross bookings at $14.3 billion. That was in line with the $14.3 billion expected by Analyst. Uber's freight business booked $1.5 billion in sales for the quarter. And the company reported an adjusted EBITDA of $665 million. That was more than the $620 million expected by Analyst. So overall, gross bookings for the quarter came in at $30.7 billion. It was up 19% year over year. And the positive news for Uber wasn't done. They went on to guidance, and guidance was pretty darn good. Uber said that they expect for Q1 2023 gross bookings to grow between 20 and 24% year-over-year year on a constant currency basis and adjusted EBITDA of 660 to $700 million. So guidance wasn't bad, and their headline numbers were great. And when you put this in relation to Lyft, you kind of ask yourself, okay, Is it a management issue? Is it a company issue? Is it a market share issue? Where is the issue? There's clearly an issue because Uber and Lyft are going head on. And if you're looking at these numbers, Uber is clearly winning the battle. Now, shifting in to Disney beating expectations as streaming subscriber losses aren't as bad as they were feared to be. Now, Disney had a great start to 2023 with an impressive first quarter beat across the top and bottom line. This time around, the company earned $0.99 per share adjusted versus $0.78 per share expected, and that was according to Refinitiv Survey of Analyst. Now, revenue also exceeded expectations and reported $23.51 billion, and that was compared to the expected $23.37 billion that was estimated by Analyst. Now, on top of that, Disney Plus subscriptions totaled $161.8 million. Higher than the 161.1 million expected, according to street account estimates. And on top of those positive numbers, now that CEO Bob Iger is back at Disney he pretty much announced that Disney is ready to undergo a major transformation of its business with an emphasis on trimming down expenses and bolstering the creative power of its content creators. In fact, Iger went on the record stating that the changes they are making, quote, will lead to a sustained growth and profitability, not just for its streaming business, but in order to assure less potential future disruptions from outside sources. Now, During the call with investors, Bob Iger announced Disney's plan to reorganize and reset their business. This will involve cutting thousands of jobs and reducing costs by $5.5 billion. And in order to achieve this, Disney will be divided into three divisions, Disney entertainment, which encompasses its streaming and media operations, ESPN, which will host its TV network as well as ESPN plus and a parks experiences and products unit, which will be responsible for immersive experiences in parks and, Also, amid a surge in demand for digital streaming platforms, Disney also experienced tensions regarding the recent price hikes, and this was a big fear. Although they had initially been expected to lose more than 3 million subscribers due to the change, and that was according to Street Account, they ended up, surprisingly, only having 2.4 million subscribers to opt out of their services following the price hike. Now, Disney's quarterly report, revealed that their direct-to-consumer business posted a narrower than expected operating loss at $1.05 billion. And that was a welcome sign for investors in Disney. Revenue up 8% year-over-year, the $23.51 billion compared to the same period last year. And net income coming in at $1.28 billion or 70 cents per share. I mean, you can't really complain about that. In long-term, Disney devotees according to many can breathe a sigh of relief as these numbers continue to point. towards a strong future for the house of the damn mouse. So Disney overall saw a 21% increase in revenue to $8.7 billion from its parks experiences and products divisions, which was great. And that was during the last quarter, 6 billion of which from theme park locations, which was really good. You're continuing to see this comeback in theme park. So, Overall, after suspending dividends in early 2020, Disney is now gearing up to reinstate them. And Bob Iger, CEO, made the announcement that Disney will be asking its board to approve the dividend by the end of the year. So a lot of positive news there. Solid revenue, solid EPS. The Disney Plus subscription numbers weren't as bad as expected. This new restructuring with major layoffs, reducing costs by $5.5 billion, a restructure dividing the company into three core segments. The new CEO, Bob Iger, coming in and pretty much asking the board to reinstate the dividend by the end of the year. I mean, this was a lot of good news for Disney. There was so much to unpack there. And actually, there was even more positive news yesterday. Right after these numbers, Nelson Peltz, or activist investor, I should call him, Nelson Peltz, declared his Disney proxy fight is over after Iger unveiled the restructuring plan. He went on to say, quote, Now, Disney plans to do everything we wanted them to do. We wish them the very best to Bob Iger, this management team, and the board. We will be watching. We will be rooting. So, that big activist proxy fight battle that you were seeing play out with Disney and Bob Iger, well, it's over just like that with a major restructuring 7,000 layoffs and so much more out of Disney. But that is the show today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you liked it. We're trying to improve the show on many fronts, including live clips from interviews and much more. But if you want to hear more, and if you want to get even more information and more value out of this podcast, let us know how you want that to be done. Let us know how we can improve the show, whether that's in the podcast comments, at me on Twitter, at Luke Donate, or pretty much any social media platform. And I'll be there or hell, email us at donatecapital.com, whatever you want to do. And also, go give my boys over at Pounding the Table a listen. But that is the show for today. Thank you. Easily profit, trade on, and I'll see you. In the